What's up, military millionaires? My name is Alex Felice, and today I am with my fabulous, as always, co-host, Dave Bray. What up, Dave? What's up, Alex? Today, we are joined by a guest that I am extremely excited for, Vitaly. Vitaly seems like the CEO of IMA, a Denver-based value investment firm with $350 million under assets under management, but that's probably not what he would claim if he met you in public. He would probably tell you that he's a writer. He writes two hours every day, most of it going to contrarianedge.com and the rest of it going to his now three published books. One of them, the most recent soul in the game, which I just completed and is tremendous. But most of all, I think he would say that he is a student of life, someone who spent a lot of time introspecting about philosophy and values. And today I am extremely delighted and grateful to have him here on our show. Thank you, Vitaly. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vic One, Oscar Mike. Hey guys, if you're looking to take your investing, business, life, or just yourself to the next level, then I have something for you. The War Room Real Estate Military Mastermind Group is a mastermind group that meets weekly in small groups of five to six people to help you hold yourself accountable and really experience that growth. But we also have a monthly guest speaker that we bring in, and we've had guest speakers that talk about mindfulness, taxes, we're bringing in somebody to talk about marketing. We bring in very specific topics that will adhere to very broad, any any kind of real estate investing or investing or entrepreneurship that you want to do, and we'll really help you out. We let you ask these speakers questions and get very personal with them. And then back to the small groups, weekly accountability for what you're trying to achieve and just being surrounded by like-minded people. And they say your network is your net worth. I know that's an overused phrase, but I recommend that you check it out. So just shoot an email to wrmastermind at gmail.com. Once again, that's wrmastermind at gmail.com. And we'll send you some more information. Alex and Dave, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So yeah, welcome to the show, brother. Yeah. So you, you, uh, I'm curious right out of the gate, how did you find us? I think I, uh, like, I'll be completely honest right now. So I think we, uh, I had my assistant go through podcasts and, you know, and, and look at different podcasts that she thought were, you know, would be good for, for, uh, for my book. And she reached out to you well, guys. Well, you're in the right place. And generally, um, I, I've never been so excited to help you sell it, to help a guest sell their book. And this one deserves to be um, bought by everybody that in our uh, in our list. And Vitaly has tremendous wisdom in both investing and uh, life wisdom, like uh, like nobody we've ever had on the show before. So uh, I, I'd love to hear your you know the five minute story of your life and how we got here. Well, so I'm going to start from today. Uh, so I'm a CEO of AMA. It's a value investment firm in Denver, and. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit what we do. So people come to us and say, Vitaly, here's my life savings. Please don't screw it up. And so that's, and that's what we do. We manage their money, make sure, you know, so they get through recession or whatever. So, you know, you know uh, we don't lose money for them in the long run. Now, more importantly, I have a wife and three kids. We live in Denver. My son is uh, the oldest child, is 21, and my youngest is eight, and middle one is 16. And... um 
as you can tell from my accent, I'm from Mississippi. No. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I was, uh, so I was born in Russia and I used to say this, you know, with pride that I was, you know, I was I'm from Russia. Now I, now there's a lot less pride when I say this. And I, now I say I'm from USSR. I was born in the USSR. Uh, but you know, so I was born in Russia. We moved to the United States, my whole family in 1991. So I was 18 years old. And, uh, so we lived in Denver for 30 plus years. It's going to be yeah, 31 years in, uh, in December. And, uh, so the, that's kind of, that's kind of the, uh, uh, the short version of my story. Yeah. And so you are a value investor, uh, on the, the book, somebody says you are the next Ben Graham, which is a tremendous accolade, a tremendous title. Um, but you do, you do value investing, which, um, is a, it's an interesting time for value investing. I imagine because right now we're in, what I can tell is uh, near full-blown mania in the market and everybody's really confident. And so you're looking for really uh, underpriced stocks that you can hold for long periods of time. Is that sort of the gist? Yeah, let me correct you just a little bit. Please. What, you, what you said was accurate about six months ago. In other words, the mania, full-blown mania was going on Six, six, eight months ago. Now that mania is a lot less, you know, like now a lot of those uh, kind of, I would call dot-com 2.0 stocks decline 50, 70%. So, and the money is subsiding, you know, the money is subsiding. And I would like, if you want to look at a historical analogy, and I want to warn you, analogies are not perfect, but we are kind of in the 2001 uh, era, like where, when the dot-com bubble burst, and now there is a rotation from insanity to common sense. We are kind of somewhere in the midst of it right now. And um, what's good about it, when insanity is replaced by common sense, usually value does better. And, there, and, and, and for a long period of time, because value is common sense. And since, in fact, you know, Warren Buffett would say that the, the word value investment you know, is kind of redundant. It's really just investing or commonsensical investing. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a value investor and I'm very excited because the more disciplined you were over the last 10 years, the, the less money you made. Interesting. That's really interesting. Let me, let me give you this analogy. Okay. Let me just give you this analogy. Imagine you're going to, uh, you play poker and when you play, um, no, no, okay. Let me sorry. When you blackjack, you play blackjack. You play blackjack and you know, the blackjack in the long run, you're going to lose, but you can lose. You can, you, you can, you, you can reduce your odds of losing. You can, you know, by, you know, by, by, by playing it right. So in other words, the less, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the more aggressive you were with your betting and the, the less you follow the, you know, this, you know, the, the rules, you know, you know, that would minimize your losses, the more money you made. Oh, you know, so that overlast, you know, so the, you know, so that that's exactly, that's what, you know, that's what happened in, in the stock market as well. By the way, let's, guys, let's kill the whole uh, gambling analogy because it doesn't work. So let's just stick to the previous one. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, I would, yeah, anyway. I would say you're kind of right though. I mean, I was witnessing that in, you know, 2019, 2020, um, I was sitting in my office with the Marine Corps and all of a sudden it's like everybody I'm working with in the crypto stock game is a day trader and they're all like, look at all this money I'm making and I'm in real estate and 
dollar cost averaged into the TSP, which is our 401k, trying to be like, okay, guys, I see that you are making some money right now. I get that. Let me talk to you about short-term capital gains tax and long-term strategies and what you, you know, and then it was like, you could just kind of see when the market started to shift again and they all just, instead of, it wasn't a pivot, it was a just like, and the phone goes away and we're quiet again. And so, so, so let me tell that, let me tell this story. This is a true story. Um, like this is 2001, late 2001. The only reason I remember this is because my son was just a few months old and I was on a business trip in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my partner and I had a five hours to kill. So we went to, we went to the Indian, Indian casino and, um, and, uh, just to kill time. And it, I was playing blackjack and I just learned, and I just recently read the book about blackjack. And I had like 20 hours that I was going to spend and I played extremely exactly by the rules. Okay. And there was a guy standing right next to me and he was half drunk and he had a wad of cash. And I think it was his payday. And actually I knew it was his payday because he said to everybody, it was his payday. And I would make all these conservative bets and I would lose every single hand. He would make these stupendous bets, like the ones that you would tell, you know, they would, the book would tell you never do this. And he would win. And this would last maybe, lasted maybe 20, 30 minutes. And there was this huge crowd kind of around him because he was making all this money. And I was sitting right there, you know, like right next to him, making these conservative bets, just trying to buy time. And I was losing. And then, you know, after, after a while, the odds caught up with him and he lost it all. But that's kind of, these kind of things happen in the stock market all the time. And I think this is what happens during the bubbly time because you, the, the, the crazier bets you make, the more money you make for a long period of time until you lose it all. And so the difficult part for somebody like me who is entrusted for somebody's life savings is to keep doing the right thing, even though you look like a complete moron in comparison uh, to the guy who is, uh, uh, who, you know, who is basically speculating and making, you know, irresponsible decisions, I would argue. I have, a, I have a quote that you, I think you will like that references exactly this. Those who are unlucky in life in spite of their skills would eventually rise while the lucky fool might have benefited from some luck in life over the long run. He would solely converge to the state of a less, less lucky idiot. Each one would revert to his long-term properties. Yes. There's a, there's a shorter quote than this. I love it. The, in the, in the stock market, the money returns to its rightful owner. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, was, I was, I was quoting Taleb and, and those who know me in, in person know that I can't go a, a moment without quoting Taleb. Well, it's ironically. So, uh, if people seem to forget that like a 50% hit takes a hundred percent return to get you back to where you started. Um, but yeah, so ironically, when you said your, uh, assistant was looking for podcasts, I was like, well, she probably could have just typed in the name of your book into Google and it would have found some of our episodes. Cause I know that we've referenced the phrase soul of the game on podcast episodes from Taleb's writings, because Alex loves that reference. And I would say that that concept is something that <clears throat> It, it maybe you know it's almost egotistical to say that you have soul in the game on some level in in life but like alex with his camera and videography for a long time i would say on some level you know is it, it's you know i don't know hey um 
Vitaly, I have, I have one more question. I, I have one question about investing for you that maybe uh, a little bit outside of your wheelhouse. And then I'd really like to talk about the book. Um, Dave and I are real estate investors and the, our primary user base are real estate investors. Most of the, most of the, most of the conversations we have about equity and stock investing are, they go such like this. We don't know and we don't spend enough time doing the research as someone like yourself does. And so what we do is we, we dollar cost average the S&P. That's basically our equity. Play. That's our play for equities for the most part. And what we do is we focus on um, real estate for the most part. So as a, as a guy like me who is a, va- I want to buy a value investor. And it, like you said, that's redundant. What I really want to do is I want to buy properties that are underpriced, right? Simple. I want to buy properties that are underpriced. And uh, I'm sort of contrarian in nature. So I say all that to say from 2015 to 2017, the play in real estate was to buy these foreclosures because they were um, still coming off the, the 2008 crash. They were still being coming off the bank balance sheets and you could buy underpriced assets fairly easily. From 2017 to 2019, everybody was basically paying retail. From 2019 until today, people are paying. I don't know what they're basing the reality. I don't know where they're getting reality from. So... Like with that information, I know you're not a real estate guy, or I don't think you are. Um, how does a guy like me, uh, what's my play for trying to buy underpriced assets in a place where I think people are paying grossly over what things are worth almost ubiquitously? So I, I actually have a few thoughts on real estate. Um, well, let me ask you a question first. I think it's very important to have, like this actually, what I'm about to tell you applies to in stock market investing as real estate investing. When there is nothing else to buy, when you, when you see, when you don't see, when you don't see opportunities, when you don't see like 50 cent hour or 70 cent hour or whatever you want to try to get to, when everything is overvalued, you do nothing. And sitting on your hands is extremely difficult and it's painful. And there is this formal, but the everything in like uh stock market goes in cycles, so does real estate. Your dollar is gonna buy so much more when people that bought overvalued assets are now scrambling to you know uh to make the payments and and at some point we're gonna go through re, you know through painful readjustment and then that buy, that money will buy a lot more but be able to sit in your hands is very very difficult so my advice to you find another hobby for the time when you have nothing to do and um that, so like like, as a, like because i do this like I, as a stock market investor i do this all the time like there was there are times where we have 30 50% cash because we we're looking for high quality companies we want to buy them when they're undervalued which sounds probably very similar to what you're trying to do. You're trying to buy great real estate, probably in great locations. You want to buy it cheap, right? Um, and when you have, in, like, in my case, when I have nothing to buy, we just study new company. You know, we just study uh, and keep building our wish list. Company we'd like to own, and then figure out which price we want to buy, and then just wait. Um, about real estate market, I, I am extremely conflicted and confused about it, which is probably reflects an opinion of almost everybody who spent time analyzing it. Because if you think about what happened over the last three to three to five years, especially since the pandemic low, right? Real estate prices skyrocketed. And, it, and for a while, you could justify that interest rates were low. At least affordability has not changed. Now that interest rates went up, um, uh, let me give you a number. Um, 
this is uh, this. I'm trying to recollect the numbers, but I think median house in the United States costs about four hundred twenty thousand dollars, roughly. Okay, um, and average income of uh, like in the United States is about sixty five thousand dollars for a family, roughly. So, yeah. So when interest rates go from two point six for the thirty year mortgage to five point two. Um, the cost of owning the house goes up by about $7,000 or about 10% or more of uh, average income for well, a median house. So in other words, now just uh, here's the point I want to stress. When you go to a grocery store to buy tomatoes and the price of tomatoes have doubled, when you put these tomatoes on your credit card, the credit card company does not say, no, 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 this tomato is too expensive. You, you can't buy it. Okay. However, when you go to buy a house and you try to take out a mortgage, the mortgage company will say this house is overvalued. Number one, because you're going to have appraiser. And number two, they're going to say, even if it's not overvalued because interest rates went up so much. And by the way, the housing prices went up 30, 40% over previous several years. You can't afford. You can't afford it. So, I can see how the demand will just, you know, just high interest rates will just reduce and, and high valuation, you know, higher prices will reduce the demand for housing. The problem is, let me tell you why I'm confused. And he, this is where it gets very interesting. If you bought a house three years ago or two years ago, and you locked in three percent, you know, three percent mortgage payment. And now you decide, well, I'm going to move to the other part of town. And then you realize now you have to pay $7,000 more a month. I mean, uh, a year. You think, you know what? Maybe I won't move. So I think what's going to happen in the housing market, the number of transactions will drop tremendously. And, um, and then, uh, anyway, so this is like, so this is kind of, you know, this is my, my thoughts on the state of the real estate market in general. It's, uh, no, I, I, I track all of that. It's a very confusing time. And I've been doing this real estate very specifically. And I have a background in finance and banking. And, and I paid a lot of attention to the 2008 crash. And I've been watching the both, you know, the actual numbers and the narratives that go along with it over the years and trying to find out what's what. And it's a very interesting time. So, uh, no, I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, I really do. Because I think, you know, there's just not enough people that say, I think there, I think that you know, saying, Hey, look, it's a confusing time. And, and I appreciate your, your positions on it, but it's very, it's very, I think it's very unpredictable or yeah, it's a very confusing time for a lot of us. Real estate only goes up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So I have not read your first two books, which um, are about value investing uh, fairly specifically invest uh, investing. Um, and I'm only a new, subscriber to your email list. But I did read this book, Soul in the Game. Uh, I believe the term comes from uh, Taleb's term, Soul in the Game, which I adore. And, and I, find, um, I, find, uh, I find myself using it quite often because as David said earlier, I'm, I'm a, I have a creative side like you do with writing. Uh, I'm not as good as a writer as you, but I, I'm pretty handy with the camera. Um, but I find, uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned Taleb once in this book. And I, and I, maybe twice. I have a, actually have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that you mentioned him another time, but, um, is that on purpose or did you, you, you speak a lot about the Stoics. You speak a lot about, um, you mentioned Dostoevsky, who I love. You mentioned, um, Buffett a lot, but no, very little Taleb. Why is this? 
Oh, I, I, I don't, I think I actually mentioned it quite a few times for considering I'm, I'm writing a non-finance book. In fact, in the, when I talk about soul in the game, I mentioned that the idea, like this, the whole, the, you know, the, the term came from Talib. You know, it's a, you know, I, I, I give him, I give him credit for that. Um, no, I, I think actually, just think about it. I'm writing about, I'm, I'm writing a, I'm writing a book that has nothing to do with finance. And we can do control F and, you know, how many times I mentioned it. Probably maybe more than, more, more than a few times. And, uh, I have a tremendous respect for Nassim. Uh, he's a absolutely incredible thinker. And I have, like, let me tell so this. I'm 49 years old and, I was introduced to him on my 30th birthday because a friend of mine gave me his book, first book, Fooled, Fooled by Randomness. No, well, actually, I guess it would be second book. They, no, actually, it's um, Fooled by Randomness uh, when, I was, yeah, when I was 30 years old. And it's kind of interesting. Um, the Dynamic Hedging, his editor was Pamela Van Giesen, who is the same editor who, uh, who I had for my first two Wiley books. So, uh, so, uh, yeah. And, uh, in fact, Nassim was, uh, kind of, uh, uh, I was at the time I was negotiating with Wiley and he said, do you want me to negotiate for you? I'm like, no, thank you. But thank you. <laughs> so he was, uh, yeah, he was very kind about that. But anyway, um, no, I think, so the soul in the game concept is absolutely incredible. And I read, and so when I read skin in the game, that's where the concept came from. And, and I was reading this in the game. It's a great book. And I stumbled on this chapter, which I have to ask Nassim if this, you know, on he, if he had to rate how important the chapter was for him. It sounded to me like it was almost like a throwaway chapter for him. To me, that was probably the most important chapter in the book. Um, and it seems like the same for you guys, right? Yeah, he's got a, a chart in that book about um, people with no skin in the game, people with skin in the game, and then people with soul in the game, artisans. Um, creators and this and that. And, um, I remember I was listening to it on audiobook. It was my first Taleb book. I'd stumbled across it and, um, I was like, man, this guy's grumpy, but he's really smart. That was my first impression. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's on audiobook and it's in the, in the, it's going on uh, my speaker in the house and my girlfriend at the time, she's listening and he's doing uh, on the audio. It just does this thing. So-and-so skin in the game. So-and-so no skin in the game. So-and-so soul in the game. And he does this chart for a while. And, uh, I remember it like, it really sunk into me, um, that, that piece. And yeah, it stuck with me for a long time. And, and then I immediately read, read all four other books. Um, so you, on page 158, you have a friend that you, um, that you say he's an incredible thinker, but sometimes he teaches you how not to behave because when he gets somebody in there's in his sights, he is ruthless about, uh, he, he, he's ruthless, um, uh, in condemning them. Is this, is this, is there any correlation to our friend? Cause he's pretty severe on Twitter to say the um, least. <laughs> I prefer not to answer that question. <laughs> fair, enough. I, fair enough. I, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, <laughs> trying to get people uh, okay. in trouble, Alex. Yeah. Well, yeah, then yeah I'm no, going to, I'm going <laughs> to talk about something I read the, uh, this morning's chapter that I, uh, so I'm, I'm bad at this. I'm a, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the disc profile personality thing, but I'm like a, uh, like 99. I like, uh, I, I very much am the type of personality who, wants people to like me and, and it's, you know, trying to work through it. It's not an easy thing to deal with a lot of times. And so your chapter today that I was reading, uh, 
well, actually not today. Uh, it's like a week ago. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, was the, um, the, where you vocalize internal, external, when you, uh, think through, uh, emo- like emotional, the stoicism piece. And like, I've, I know that, right. I know things that are in your control, out of your control, internal disruptors, external disruptors, but the fact that you vocalize it or, or tell yourself like, Oh, this is an external thing. I can't control this is, uh, I was like, wow, that's actually like, that's such a simple and subtle difference. And so I'm going to start doing that. I was like, wow, that's, that makes, yeah. So I don't know. I'll let you, I'll let you know how it, uh, how it works for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited to start giving that a shot. Cause I was like, that's such a simple little trick to just go. Nope. Nope. This is, this is, don't worry about that. They, so the, let me just make this point. So stoic philosophy I would probably, like, I think maybe a more appropriate name would be Stoic practice. Because we said, you know, like, I look at Stoic, you know, Stoic, let's call it Stoic practice for now, as basically an operating system for life. And we, when you try to practice this, you're trying to rewrite the programming that's, that, you know, f- that's been, you've been programmed for decades and you're trying to rewrite it. And therefore, you're going to, it's a just there's a there's an Asian proverb, um, knowing and not doing is not knowing. Knowing and not doing is not knowing. So you're reading the book, but not practicing it, like or you're reading you're reading about philosophy, but not doing anything about it. You might as well not know it, right? So I, th- I would argue that it's just all it, you have to practice every day, and you're gonna fail a lot. But every time you fail, you try to learn from it, get up and keep going, which is, I'm sure that's probably very similar with you guys training you got in military. So that's probably very similar to that. Um, there was another piece of advice in here, something that I had learned, and it was, I was really encouraged to see you you write, some, write about it much, very eloquently about um, environment. And I think this is a piece of advice that I would love our listeners to really to understand. Um, the, the simple explanation I always heard, the first one was... Um, you know, you should, you should have no TV in your bed. The only thing you should do in your bed is sleep. And what it does is it trains your brain so that when you go to the bed, you go to sleep. And you, you mentioned this um, with writing. You're like, I have to go somewhere specific to write because then I get into the mental creative space to write. And I, I think people are like this with a lot of things. I say about the gym. I find very, very, very few human beings who can have a home gym and be productive um, work out productively because there's too many distractions at home. I'm certainly not speaking for everybody, but it's much harder to get into that creative, that, that certain mental space. And so, um, I don't know if you wanted to expand on that. There's a piece uh, just so I could, uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of prep the listeners about what it was. Let me, let me just give you like an example that I didn't have in my book, but it's a, it's very, it's, I think it's, you know, it may help some people. My son, Jonah, who was a horrible student when he was in 11th grade in high school, his GPA was literally 1.3. And then he decided that he's going to, he just suddenly when he went to 12th grade, he matured. And he realized that he can't study at home. He just can't. So he would go to libraries, different libraries, and that's where he would study. And that's, that's what worked for him. And he would tell me that when he goes to the library, he would spend one hour in one room, then go to another room for another hour. And that he, that's something he needed to do. And even today when he studies, he, 
spends me you know, a couple hours in one Starbucks and goes to another Starbucks. And that's, that's, that's what works for him. So he needs to be, he can study in our house. He can study in his apartment. He needs to be somewhere else. And that's, and so we all need to figure out what works for us. Like, so in other words, let me be a little bit more specific. We have to be mindful about this. We shouldn't just say, I'm going to study. We also, we, also, we also should think, where do we study best? Is it at home? Is it at Starbucks or the library? Um, whatever works. I, I think I wrote my first two books in Panera Bread and Borders Bookstore. And Borders Bookstore was perfect, actually, because like when I was writing about poker, uh, or, or gambling or whatever, I would go to the gambling section, pull the book out and just, you know, catch up on some terminology that I didn't know all the time. So, so, but that was, that environment worked for me. Today, I do things differently. Today, I have a writing chair in the basement and I have a writing chair in the bedroom and I have a laptop that's waiting for me when I want to write. I have my head on over the uh, headphones and and I write. And I find that I like to write in a dark room. That's, you know, so that's why I like to write in the morning or in the, you know, or sometimes in the evening. So that's, that's how I work best. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like when I uh, moved back here from California and got out of the military, uh, I, <clears throat> during the pandemic, I had to work from home a decent amount. And I realized very quickly I did not want to do that. So I made sure to buy, I mean, it's a house, but. And an, it's a home office, but the home is not where I live. So it's a Airbnb upstairs and then office downstairs. <clears throat> and then it's 20 minutes from my house because I was like, I don't want, I want to be able to go to work. And because I realized when I'm, when I'm in the house, it would take me forever to actually start working because there's always something around the house to do. And then it would, I would never shut it off. It was impossible to shut it off because there's always another project to work on. So I would never, I struggled to shut it off and play with the kids. And so now it's like, okay, time to go to work, time to shut it off and go home. Um, but I, but then I've realized lately, like I, when I need to think through a problem, this isn't the room to do it in. It's either the conference room or go on a hike and sit at a picnic table outside. Or so I agree completely. There's like different settings for different things, but yeah. yeah, most of our listeners, I believe, are younger, right? They're eighteen-year-old service members that are either just joining or probably, you know, less than twenty-five that are getting out. And uh, a lot of them want to be entrepreneurs. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur these days, and and a lot of it comes with self—I um, don't want to say self-discipline, but self-scheduling at the minimum, and understanding how to set your day up, and you know, using environments to your advantage. When it, I was very late in life when I figured this out, and now it's like, dude, I live in a Starbucks because I. I like being around people. I don't want to talk to them all the time, but I like being around them. And, the, and, and I got my headphones in. Most of the time, there's nothing listening. Also, I want to get... Uh, I got enough thought about that. Um, but that's... I go there and it's like, now I'm in work mode. And when I go to the gym, I'm in lift mode. And when I'm at home, I'm in, you know, girlfriend mode. Um, but but um, it made me think... That comment just made me think of something. You had... Towards the end of the book, you had, throughout the book, you talk about classical music and your love for classical music. And you, you may have changed my mind about something. I don't listen to classical music. And to be honest, I have no intention of picking it up personally. But I listen to a lot of music when I write and it's distracting. And I had never considered the fact that the lyrics and you, the way you put it, I think, in the book was you're listening. It's like trying to listen to two languages at once. 
and I'm trying to think about what I want to write and I have this music in my head and now I'm considering, you know, how can I find music without lyrics? Because it's really jamming up my, my mental space. So let me tell you the story. So this is, uh, okay. So my son, Jonah was born in the, uh, 2001. Um, so this is like early internet at the time. And I, so I, I read about a study, but I haven't read the study. It was called Mozart effect, uh, Mozart effect. And the, basically the headline I read was if your kids listen to classical music early, or especially to Mozart, then that gives them an advantage to become, they will be smarter. Okay. So my wife at the time is five or six months pregnant. And this is before walk, uh, this is before, uh, uh, iPods or iPhones. So we, I bought a belt that had a speaker built into it. And, uh, and then we put it, we had a CD player that we also put it there. And my wife walked in the house for hours, you know, and playing Mozart's music into her belly. Okay, because I wanted to give my son an early start in being a genius. And, uh, and, you know, when he was growing up, he would, you know, I listened to classical music all the time. You know, we would, you know, he would listen to classical music. And then actually, I actually, I actually read the study uh, <laughs> a few years ago. And the study was basically, it has Mozart the fact, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Mozart. The guy who conducted the study, he liked Mozart. And therefore, when he was conducting the study, he used Mozart. The funny part is he could have used Metallica or ACDC or anything else. It was really about music. You know, this, you know, it's really had nothing to do with Mozart. And the study basically found this. When you, when you are in, when you are listening to music, it activates a connection between your left brain and right brain. So therefore, that induces more creativity and communication between the two sides of your brain. However, the, it only, it's only, there is maybe 10, 10 minute residue after the fact. So after you stop listening, maybe there is a positive side effect for about 10 minutes and then it stops. Okay. That's point number one. So by listening to Mozart or ACDC or whatever, it's not going to make you more brilliant. Uh, now, this, and this is, and this is where, and, and uh, this is the, um, this is your point you're making is that you're right. When you're listening to music that has words, your brain is basically in addition to, uh, you're trying to write, you, the part of the brain that uh, is responsible for speech is also analyzing the, the words of what you listen to. And therefore it actually can have a negative impact on your creativity because you are taxing your brain, you know, it was this. So you need to figure out what music, uh, helps you, which one doesn't. So I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, so I listen to classical, you know, so I listen to classical music and that works for me. Now, I don't listen to any violin concertos when I write because I find that violin, even though there are no words, it interferes with my writing. However, I listen to operas and operas have a lot of words. However, I don't speak French, Italian, or German. So those words just kind of go past me. You know, so my brain is not trying to analyze them because it you know, doesn't understand them. So, um, so for me, that, that's what works for me. So everyone, everybody who writes or does something creative need to be, again, be mindful about it, what music works for you, which doesn't. And by the way, Alex, I, on my website, I have this website, myfavoriteclassical.com. Okay. I have this article at the very top. It's called Gateway Drug to Classical Music. 
I created playlists for somebody like you, where you listen to this music and you can't not fall in love with it. Okay. So my favorite classical.com and right there it says gateway drug to classical music or let me tell you the exact name of I think that's what it is it's at the very very top of the website oh okay it's called how do you introduce someone to classical music at the very very top and there's a playlist at the bottom and it's in for Spotify and YouTube and I highly encourage you to try it okay it's a and you'll you'll see maybe you maybe what you you know maybe you can just use it for listening you know, for when you, you know, when you create, you know, when you write. Yeah. Well, um, I, I spent a lot of time in the last few years writing and I thought that I, interestingly enough, not to go on too much of a tangent. Um, I wanted to write a book about risk because I had been in banking for so long and I watched people make these really gross errors about risk, um, but in their personal lives. And then, so I said, before I have the audacity to write a book that I think I know about risk, I'm going to go learn about risk. And that's when I stumbled about Taleb and I realized that I have no earthly idea I have a lot more to learn before I have anything to teach. And, <laughs> but I, I spent the last few years writing and, and, um, you know, it helped me tremendously both in my thoughts and being able to, um, you know, sort of coalesce ideas, but also help me connect to people. And it seems, it sounds like a, a lot of the same, uh, for your book, you know, it sounds like writing has had a tremendous effect on you as well. And I, for the last year and a half since the, since the pandemic, I haven't been writing as much because, um, it's just been difficult for me to get into my, my productive habits like I like. And I told my girlfriend last night, actually, over the last few nights in bed, I was like, dude, uh, I've been inspired to write more because you make me miss it. So I've, I'm grateful for that. And I will try to do it to classical music and I'll let you know how it goes. If I, <laughs> I do a lot of classical music when I write, but if that doesn't work for you, another like kind of like middle ground options. <clears throat> one is there's an app called brain.fm, which has just like you can click on like. I want focus music, study music or whatever. And it's all non-lyrical and it's just kind of like, um, it's, it's a weird mix, but it, it does help you. It's like modern stuff that's designed to like neurologically help you focus on whatever you want to, uh, or I'll do like movie soundtracks that are non-lyrical. So like Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, like something upbeat, but still just, you know, concert. But yeah, a lot of I do a lot of Vivaldi or Mozart or whatever when I'm trying to write. So Shelby just listens to Wi-Fi, uh, uh, Lo-Fi. She wants me to listen to Lo-Fi. Oh, I was like <laughs> Wi-Fi. That sounds uh... yeah. Um, Tali, I got a question for you. What is what is your favorite part of the book? And I know that's a hard question. What's your favorite lesson, maybe? So let me. So that when you write a book, it's very difficult to write anything original. Okay. And I think the most original part of the book for me, especially with the part where I learned the most is the, about the art and craft. To me, that actually, that mental model of art and craft was, which I felt that probably the most original, like that was the, the concept where, so when, when, what happens in general about creativity, you, over time, you read a lot, you know, you get a lot of new ideas, you know, you, you learn a lot from other people. And then you kind of put it together and you, it's like you use them as ingredients and you make your own soup out of that and you do your own kind of mixing and stuff. Well, when I felt like what art and craft, all the ingredients were mine. Like it was, like it was probably the most original idea in the book, I would argue. And, uh, so that's for that reason, I, I would say probably my favorite 
Can we go into a little bit? I was actually a little offended about that chapter at first before I understood it all, but uh, I'd love, I'd love to explain it for our listeners. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about what art is. Well, actually, let me tell the story like I use in the book, but, uh, but you can, you know, you know, so anyway, so my brother, my, my son and I, we are in Venice and we took a trip to this little island in Venice, Murano, where we went to the glass factory and they try, you know, they basically made it like they, uh, there's a 30 minute demonstration of how they make, uh, different things out of glass. And then they hoped we would buy something in their store. Okay. So, we, uh, so watching this guy take a hot bulb of glass and put us some triceps, triceps in it. And in the, in the matter of 30 seconds or a minute, you know, there was, he makes a horse like a beautiful horse out of this just bulb of glass. Okay. And by the way, if you go on YouTube and if you just type Morana horse, you'll see videos of this. You know, it's literally the horse is born in, in front of your eyes. Um, my brother, Alex and I, and my son, we were, after we were done with this, we were walking around Venice and we were kind of thinking, is that an art or craft? Like the creation of this horse. And like, and then we look at the, you know, and then we look at the, oh, we stop by this, all these different stores and we see these horses and they all look the same. And then we're like, well, okay, maybe, maybe this, maybe it's not an art. Maybe it's a craft. And then I realized, you know what? It's, it's an art. If it touches you, that's an art. If it's not, you know, that's, then it's, you know, if it doesn't touch you, then it's not an art. Now, but then I realized we were asking the wrong question. The question is for this guy who is creating this horse. Is he, is that an art for him or it's a craft? And this is my insight. When he was working on this horse for the first time, like years ago, and at the time he had no idea how it's going to look like. Okay. So he had this, like there was a, and this is how I feel when I write, you know, there is this, um, on the one side, I have a curiosity, how it's going to look like. On the other side, there's a fear and you have this, Am I going to be able to do this or not? And there is this always uh, tug of war between these two emotions, conflicting emotions. And to me, that is what art is. When you have this, when you have this kind of curiosity and fear, you know, okay. However, now let's say this guy made this horse, you know, he, you know, after he made horses for three years, whenever he, he starts making a new horse at this point, there is very little, you know, there's very little, uh, curiosity because he knows exactly what he needs to do to make this horse. And this point, it's just, you know, the art became a complete craft. Okay. So I would argue for us, for a lot of creative people, when we do the same activity many, many times and becomes a craft, we need to start looking for activities where there is more art present. Okay. In the book, I use uh, an example of Claude Monet, who, you know, who rented an apartment, uh, in, uh, and, uh, and painted, uh, Rennes Cathedral for six months. And all he was doing, just studying, uh, studying light because the cathedral by itself, you know, the building doesn't change, but the, you know, but he loved how the lighting, uh, every day the lighting was a little bit different and he was studying you know, how, the light, how to paint art, how to paint that, uh, light on the cathedral. And then after that, he went to paint, um, haystacks and he started haystacks and, uh, and then he did the, uh, water lilies. 
By the way, if you look, if you if you carefully look at Monet's paintings, there is a, he, there's probably thirty or fifty paintings of water lilies. There is a dozens of paintings of haystacks, and there is a, there is a reason for that because he was studying this. But at some point, when he felt that the art was gone and all left his craft, he moved on to a different subject. I really like that concept, really, really, because I feel that when I get I get obsessed about something, I get good at it. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm bored. Let me go do something new. Let me go do something new and challenging. Um, how do you feel? Can you? Is there any way that you tie that into investing? Absolutely. Um, okay. Imagine if you are an analyst, and all you're doing is analyzing utility stocks. This I don't know. There's probably 20 utilities in the United States. Okay, and it's a very boring business. Okay, maybe when you start analyzing in the beginning, there is some some nuances you have to learn. But after you've been doing it for a couple of three or four years, it's like there was very little to learn. And I'm, I'm just using it as an extreme. Okay. Um, and, and so suddenly what's in the beginning was a art for you because there was a lot to learn. Now it's all craft. Now there is, you learn very little. So the beauty of investing in general, especially being a generalist, like I am, I get to learn every single day. Because I get to learn about you know many different industries, different companies, different countries. So for me, investing is an art because the amount I can learn, like because if I if I if I was just analyzing utility industry all all day long, it would be all craft, no art. Uh, and by the way, just I want to make this point clear: if you well, because I just going to contradict myself, if. If if you're in the domain where everything you do is just completely art and there is zero craft, you're gonna be miserable too. Because you need to have you need to have a balance of art and craft. And so because every time I am analyzing it, something and I'm doing it for a long, long time, I develop craft as well. And the craft is very helpful in creation as well. So I just I don't want to say you only want just art. You want to have a healthy balance between art and craft. Not too much of one, not too you know, not too much of another. Extremely insightful, and you know, I, I life is such a game of self awareness. And you know, I, I, for thirty years of my life, I called myself. I was like, I'm an analytic. I'm not a. I'm not creative. I'm not a creative type. And then, you know, <laughs> I love that face you just made at me. Um, and then I picked up a camera. And along the way, I was like, "Oh, actually, I am. I'm extremely creative. You just you got to find your, you got to find the you know the way that is that works for you." Um, and so now, I feel so much of this that that sort of mode that you just talked about, where I'm looking for my next, I'm looking for the next thing that I want to get good at. And then when I get really good at it, I'm like, "Okay, but now I want to go find my next you know chaos or, or <laughs> my next obsession." Um, and I just didn't appreciate that until um, I was so much later in life, and so. I love the opportunity that we get to, and this book that you get to, to share that with people who hopefully can learn it sooner than me. Yeah, this is this has been good, man. Uh, I, I always just end up asking if there's anything that we've missed that you'd like to cover. I feel like we've kind of run through the whole book and in some investing and inspirations and classical music that we're trying to convince Alex to change his archaic ways on and well actually the opposite of archaic ways this is actually you know this is the only thing about your life Alex that is not tested by time 
Um, actually, so before we, that's a good point. But uh, and 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 with that in, with that in thought, I um, yeah, I like everything old, right? I, Lindy, I live by Lindy. So if it's if if the if the guys if the authors generally like so so, so sorry Vitali if the author is still alive I'm usually not interested. <laughs> um, but you That's you bring fair. up one of my favorite quotes in this book completely unexpectedly, um, and I think about this in terms of investing in life all the time. You bring up a Dostoevsky quote about self deception. Um, if you mm-hmm. uh, I don't have it. Unfortunately, I don't have it on me. Yeah, no. So it's a, so I think it goes something like this: uh, the don't lie to yourself because the easiest person to lie to is to yourself. And when you start, and uh, I think it continues, which I, I I think I shortened in the book. But if you can continue to deceive yourself, you're gonna stop loving. You know, it's some something along those lines. Um, let's say from Brothers Karamazov. Uh, um, yeah. So I think the self awareness is probably in mindfulness are this. This incredibly important concepts. In fact, I've been, okay, so think about this. I've been working on this essay on the mindfulness for last uh, month, and I'm, I'm only seven pages into it. Okay, I was talking to somebody today who said how slow he's at writing. I said, well, this is my pace. And because I'm learning, while I'm learning a lot as I'm writing, and I'm writing a few paragraphs a day because every single word, I have to think about, is that the right word? Is that actually, that's what, is that, is that what I think? Because I'm literally thinking through, I'm thinking through writing. But I think the mindfulness is so, so important because let me, let me give you this two analogies. Okay. Okay. You land at the airport. Okay. You get off the plane. It's a big airport. Looks like all the other airports you've seen before and you need to get luggage. So what you do, you look left and right, you look, you find the green sign baggage claim. And then you go in through the airport looking for other signs that say baggage claim, right? And when you're doing this, you're just looking forward. You're not looking left and right. You just, you're just going for baggage claim. Now, this is one state of mind. This is where you just focused on this baggage claim. And by the way, while you're running through the airport, you have absolutely no idea the people we just passed by, the stores, you know, you, you know, they were behind you, etc. Now, imagine you're in a museum, and this is like for me, it would be impressionists and you know, artists I love, and you you go through painting to painting carefully. You look at one painting. When you're done, you go to another one. You look left and right. There is an exit sign somewhere, and you're kind of aware that it's there, but that's not what you're focusing on. You're just focusing. Your the time kind of stops, you know, stops, right? The past and present don't matter anymore at this point. All you're focusing are the paintings around you. And I would argue the airport is that's how a lot of times we, we run through life. It's we're in this baggage claim mode. We're just looking forward and we're not looking left or right. Um, but when you're mindful, you start noticing things. When you go through the when you go to the park. And you're not just walking, but you're actually noticing how the light is playing on the grass, on the trees. You're, you've been fully present. And I, th- and I would argue that you experience your life so much more when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're doing that. Also, a lot of times, uh, the opposite of mindful is mindless. Okay? And mindless is a state where we just do things because we've done them in the past. Um, because 
there is this uh, Ellen Linger who wrote a lot of books on mindfulness. She tells this story, which I love. Well, it's a made-up story. Um, Alex and Dave, imagine 2 o'clock in the morning, somebody knocks on your door, and there is this woman standing there who is like, you can see she's well-dressed. She's very wealthy. And there is a Rolls Royce behind her. And she says, Alex, I'm going to give you $10,000. If you can find a piece of wood that is a three by four. Okay. My, she said, my husband and why my husband and I playing this game, whoever finds a piece of wood first wins. She's like, don't ask stupid game. Just that's what we do. You can, you kind of think about it. Okay. Well, uh, like uh, the Home Depot is closed, Lowe's closed. I don't know. I, I have no idea. You know, like junkyards. I don't know. I don't know where else to look for. You know, f- for the piece of wood. And you say, you know what? Like, I'd like to help you. I'd like to get the ten thousand dollars, but I can't help you. You go back to, you close the door and you go back to sleep. Then you wake up in the morning and uh, look at the door and you realize, oh my God, that is a three by four piece of wood. So, but the problem is this, when you think of the door, you put it in the category of a door. And therefore, when we put things in categories, we stop, like our mind kind of shuts off, you know, and, um, and we start, you know, and so if you, if you are asking, if you, if you, if you stop thinking in categories, which is, it's a skill, then you would have thought, yeah, there's probably pieces of wood in my house. There are three by four and, and there's probably five of them or 10 of them. Anyway, so that's, anyway, so this is a, this is what I think about. So the, this, this concept of mind, mindfulness and mindlessness, this is going to be my next big essay about, you know, because I, this is fascinating to me. I love it. I also love that you mentioned how much thought you put into your writing, which is, I think why this book is so good and it brings up one of the, I think it's a Mark Twain. I looked it up. It says it's Mark Twain that's attributed to, but the, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter, which I love that quote. And so I, uh, I, it, that's immediately what I thought of when you said that I was like, man, that's, that's pretty cool. It shows that you put a lot of thought into your writing, which is. Actually, I have a question for you guys. What's your favorite chapters or, or chapter or chapters? (laughs) That's, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. That's tough for me. I think, it, I mean, so if you ask me today, it's the internal, external. But for me, it's it's less a favorite chapter so far. And it's the fact that it's like a bite-sized chapter and each one has a different lesson. And it's something to digest every day. And it's cool because it's it's almost like the Daily Stoic where it's like just a different lesson every day. But it's in story form. So it's so much easier to, to digest, which is just cool. Alex is um, going to have a really deep, inspirational answer. No. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, since you, since you put me on the spot, I'm going to tell you my favorite thing about the book, but I'm also going to uh, tell you my, my maybe singular criticism. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I mentioned the part about environment. I don't know if that's my favorite part, but that definitely was some of the uh, sort of like hidden in day-to-day wisdom that people just don't think about that really affects them. And, and I thought that was really interesting you put in there. My favorite part about the book in general is... I, for the last few years, so I'm not a lifelong reader. Uh, I started reading probably 10 years ago and I did it because I want to learn how to invest and like, you know, you know, learn how to make money and learn how to do business. And so I started following all my peers and my mentors and I started reading all these business and self-help books. And I quickly, 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 quickly realized that they're shallow. 
or or there's just not that much to the self-help genre in general. There's like, you know, if you can knock out like five books of self-help, you basically got the entire the, the entire the, the entire genre. And the same thing for business and investing. It's it's very it becomes very repetitive really quick. And so but but this did not this reading only fueled my curiosity. It did not satiate it in any way. And so I started to read other books. I started to read um, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, and Taleb and these, these books that my peers weren't reading. And I, I sort of started to realize that um, more important than making money, I shouldn't say more important, but in addition to the importance of making money is learning um, the wisdom of life that is very commonly miss. Uh, missed in in our in our certainly in American culture, right? People teach you, you know, they they want to sell you things. They teach you how to buy things, right? And and that's and that's the bulk of it, right? That's the bulk of it. They they teach you these really shallow lessons. And so I have been on this mission to um, read about, learn, and and hopefully at least teach a little bit of wisdom along the way. And you have done a tremendous job. Uh, it's the same reason why I like Taleb. You said, well, I didn't want to reference him because he's not, it's, that's a finance book, but I never thought about that as a finance book. That's a philosophy book distract with a, with a finance distraction. Um, and I think you did a tremendous job of writing a, 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 a book of wisdom for investors. And it's just not done that well or that often. And I, that, that just spoke to me so, so deeply. Oh, thank you. Uh, but, but I love, I want to know the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you don't take compliments well, which I love. Okay. Um, my, my favorite quotes, and I've highlighted many in this book, my favorite quotes um, in this book, of which there are many, are all someone else's, sir. What's wrong with that? No, but I think they. There's nothing wrong with it at all. That, 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 this is my stretch of a criticism. Let's say is I keep reading this through this book. I'm like, oh, this is a great quote. I'm like, and I I said to my girlfriend, I'm like, damn it, Vitali, I'm gonna have to read back all my favorite quotes, and they're by Seneca. <laughs> so I, it's kind of interesting. When I was writing a chapter about Stoic philosophy, I made a deliberate choice to quote them tremendously. Like, so there was a, and, it, and that was a choice. It was not of laziness, but it was because I felt like they, they, they are such a clear writers and there's so much beauty in that quote, in, in, in what they wrote. This is why I wanted to bring you as close as possible to them. Um, but, uh, so that's, you know, that's why there are so many quotes, uh, but, but I'm so glad, I'm glad listen, as long as, you, you know, as long as, as long as you read it and you learn and it touches you, that's all I care about. By the way, I just did a control F on the book. I, I, I mentioned the same eight times. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's a, so it's not so, not bad. so bad. Maybe nine, depending on. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and I, I, I would not be true to myself if I didn't say the word, uh, if I, if I hadn't said something about criticism, but no, I, um, um, I don't you just have much the criticism. whole point of the Seneca chapter. That's, that's the reality. I, I, I don't have much, um, in the way of criticism and, and which is not like me. Cause usually I'm, I'm rife with it. Usually I'm good at it. No, he's been unusually nice to you on this podcast. He's normally mean. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, well, thank you for both, yeah, you know, for both, you know, constructive feedback and for the kind of things you get, both of you guys said. No, thank thank you. you for joining us. This has been awesome. Uh, okay, so obviously we've we've mentioned the the book and and uh, everybody can go and I'd imagine Amazon, but uh, 
would you uh, is there a better spot to buy that? And then where else would you like people to reach out if they'd like to get a hold of you as well as the book? So, I mean, you can buy the books wherever you buy books. You know, it's there. But so the book has a website, soulinthegame.net. Okay, let me tell you two reasons why you may want to go there. The reason number one, because um, after I finished writing the book, I couldn't stop writing. So I already wrote four chapters and I'm working on the fifth one. Um, and I can keep writing. So if you, when, when, once you buy the book, if you go to the website, then there will be instructions how you can get more chapters, absolutely free. And also you can subscribe to my articles, which I guess Alex and Dave already subscribed to. And then you get my other writings as I write them. So I write about life, about investing. Yes, there is some classical, you know, and at the bottom of which article, I write about classical music as well. So, uh, um, so if you go to soulinthegame.net, uh, you can uh, subscribe. Uh, you, you can basically you, know, you, you can subscribe to my articles and get uh, new chapters. Now, the if you're listening and watching this podcast, you probably like to listen. So this book is available on Audible. Okay, but also I do have a kind of what I call lazy man's podcast. Imagine instead of if you instead of uh, reading my articles, you can listen to them. And that's what really my podcast is. Somebody reads you my articles. So it's kind of articles on tape and quotes. So it's if you look for intellectual investor or go to investor.fm, you can, you know, you can you know, start listening to my podcasts. That's and, all. And just as one last plug for the book, in case, and I, I don't know that this needs to be said, because in case Alex and I recommending the book wasn't good enough for you, uh, four other people, somewhat acceptable gentlemen that have endorsed this book who are I guess on par with Alex and I no I'm just kidding uh, but he's he's got he's got endorsements from uh, General McChrystal Wim Hof Carl Bernstein author of All the President's Men and Nassim Nicholas Taleb all on the top of well on the back of the book and on the top of the website so if those four gentlemen are willing to endorse the book and if you don't know who those gentlemen are or at least one of those gentlemen are uh yeah, that's that's saying something. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool, pretty pretty awesome uh, accomplishment, and and I mean, well deserved. It's an awesome book. So, we really appreciate uh, for one the the copy of the book and the chance to read it, and for two uh, your time today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave, Alex. That was so much fun. Thank you so much, guys. Thank Tremendous. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarytomillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.